want you to hit me as hard as you can. In 1987, director Brian De Palma released his explosive gangster epic, The Untouchables, focusing on the violent battle between Al Capone and Treasury agent Elliot Ness in 1930s Chicago. Writer David Mamet adapted his screenplay from the 1957 novel written by Oscar Fraley but dictated by Elliot Ness himself. The once intrepid crime fighter, at that point living in Pennsylvania, broke and drunk, recounted his glory days while Fraley wrote, and exaggerated, everything said by Ness. The book was released to wide acclaim, spawning a television show and revitalizing Ness's name in the public consciousness. Sadly, Ness would not be able to bask in his newfound popularity as he died of a heart attack before the book's release. Many historians argue the novel is rife with factual errors and dramatic liberties, but did Brian De Palma more accurately depict the battle for the soul of Chicago, or is his movie just as riddled with holes? Let's do some good! And find out what the fuck really happened to this movie. In 1920, a bill was signed into law banning the production, transportation, importation, and sale of alcoholic beverages throughout the United States. Prohibition, as it was known, remained in effect until 1933. The incredibly unpopular law caused a massive boom in organized crime, with the most money flowing through larger cities like Chicago, which was home to one of the biggest peddlers of illicit booze in the country, Al Capone. Big Al was racking up close to $100 million a year in sales. That's over $1.5 billion when accounting for inflation. With so much cash on the line, the Chicago mobster had to protect his territory and income through threats and violence, and the city was trapped in the crossfire. In 1929, President Herbert Hoover made it his mission to put Al Capone behind bars. Disgusted with the fact that a criminal was essentially running a major American city, he approached famed U.S. Attorney George E.Q. Johnson to handle the situation. George reached out to the Federal Treasury Department to assist in taking the gangster down. This is just about where the movie picks up. The year is 1930. Booze is illegal. And Al Scarface Capone is the kingpin of Chicago. We meet Big Al, played by Robert De Niro, getting a shave in his lavish room surrounded by journalists who hang on his every word. He's intimidating, but also genial. For whatever reason, the press loves him. But the dark reality of Al's business is demonstrated soon after. A drugstore owner, disappointed by the quality of Capone's green booze, refuses to buy any more from one of the goons. The gangster exits on a cordial note, but leaves behind his suitcase. A young girl notices and rushes to return it, only for the case to explode, killing her and decimating the entire store. Fortunately, this scene was a work of fiction. While Capone was a violent man and ruled through intimidation and extortion, there are no reported cases of him ordering such an excessive hit on a lowly store owner. Such violent tactics were usually reserved for rival gangs and higher-ups, and explosives were hardly ever used. Because it's not good business. The green beer referred to in the scene was actually a genuine issue during Prohibition. If the homemade beer didn't ferment long enough, it developed a sour taste, much like green apples. The following day, we meet Treasury agent Elliot Ness, played by Kevin Costner, as he reads about the bombing in the newspaper. It fuels his anger and desperation to take down Capone. We also meet his wife and later his daughter. In reality, Ness didn't have a daughter, only an adopted son, but that wasn't until the 1940s. Ness was married in 1929 to Edna Stahl, but his wife in the film is never given a name, so there's no way of confirming if this is her. Chicago Chief of Police Mike Hughes gathers a group of reporters to introduce Elliot Ness. The journalists doubt that Ness will be very effective, and even the chief looks unsure. In real life, Mike Hughes was the chief of police at the time, and despite his doubtful attitude in the movie, he was actually a supporter of Ness and his actions to take down Capone. As a matter of fact, he hired hundreds of officers in an effort to stop the flow of booze in his city. 
and Elliot Ness was certainly the straight arrow he's made to appear in the movie, garnering a reputation as a Boy Scout. Elliot's first chance to prove himself comes with a planned raid on one of Capone's secret warehouses. So I hope that you've signed on for some action, gentlemen, because you're going to get it. Ness and a small army of officers wait until a shipment of booze arrives, and then ram the doors and flood the building. Unfortunately for Ness, Capone's henchmen were tipped off. All they find inside are crates filled with umbrellas. It's a total disaster. While the real Ness definitely didn't bat a thousand when it came to busting shipments, this particular episode was fictionalized for the film. Typically, Ness would raid speakeasies in warehouses that produced the booze, rather than buildings that simply stored them. After the drop-offs, Ness and his men would follow the delivery trucks back to the production sites and carry out the raids there. It got to the point where Capone actually had to transport barrels of booze in small cars, since they were harder to track, which severely limited his revenue. However, the shock and awe tactic of literally plowing through doors was accurate. It gave the goons no time to run or hide any of their illegal product. Disappointed with his failure, Ness takes a stroll down a dark bridge that night and encounters beat cop Jimmy Malone, played by Sean Connery in his only Oscar-winning performance. It's a chance meeting that will ultimately change the course of Ness's efforts against Capone. But this is also total fiction. Jimmy Malone was a Hollywood creation, loosely based on another Irish-American member of the real Untouchables, Marty Lahart. Ness and Lahart already had history together, so they were familiar with each other. And he was only a few years older than Ness, unlike the mentor character he's made out to be in the film. The next day, Ness returns to work to find his fellow officers mocking his failed raid. But he's also approached by the mother of the girl who died in the opening explosion, and she thanks him for the work he's doing. Her words reinvigorate Ness and his quest for justice. This prompts him to visit Malone's apartment, where he begs him to help take down Capone, but Malone declines. While it's possible that Ness visited those affected by Capone's violence, this particular case involves the mother of a fictional daughter. Furthermore, the film makes it seem like Ness was unwanted in the police department, but that simply wasn't the case. He was well-respected, and from the get-go, his intentions of building a team to catch Capone was well-known. While not every cop supported his efforts, especially those in Capone's pocket, he wasn't the laughingstock of the office. And finally, Marty Lahart, the person Malone was based on, joined the crew with little hesitation. The next day, Elliot Ness meets Oscar Wallace, an accountant who was sent by Treasury to track Capone's financial records with the hopes of nailing him on tax evasion or some other form of financial fraud. Ness plays along but clearly looks frustrated by the new direction his bureau is taking. Although Wallace was a fictional character, he was based on Frank Wilson, a Treasury accountant who was instrumental in taking down Capone arguably more so than Ness. While Ness was in the streets busting down doors and taking names, Wilson combed over hundreds of records with his partner, Elmer Irie, not seen in the movie, looking for any evidence that could possibly incriminate Capone. Ness was an important part of the actual operation, but his role was described almost as PR. He posed for pictures, raised morale, and hit Capone where it hurt. All while Frank Wilson slowly sowed the seeds of Capone's downfall. The men also never worked together like they do in the movie. They were part of two totally separate investigations. However, the idea to catch Capone on tax fraud was 100% true. Prohibition was wildly unpopular. People wanted booze and they wanted to gamble. So Capone was providing desired services, making him something of a necessary evil in the eyes of citizens. Not only that, but Capone opened soup kitchens during the Great Depression, which helped his standing in the community. The prosecuting attorneys feared a jury would let Capone go on bootlegging charges, and since there was no way to connect him to the many murders he undoubtedly ordered, the best way to go was tax evasion, because if there was one thing everyone hated, it was a wealthy cheat who didn't pay his taxes. After meeting Oscar Wallace, Ness is visited by Malone, who's reconsidering his offer. They head to a church to talk business, because as Malone states, These walls are ears. It is true that Capone had a lot of police in his pocket, so it probably wasn't a good idea to talk business out in the open like that, but the real Ness never made a blood oath to take down Capone. Ness's intentions were very clear from the beginning. There was no need to hide it. That's the Chicago. To find more help, Malone and Ness head to the police academy to recruit a cadet that hasn't yet fallen under Capone's thumb. 
This is where they meet George Stone, a.k.a. Giuseppe Petri, a proud officer with superior integrity and weapon skills. While George Stone never existed in reality, it is true that Ness looked for men who were honest and fresh. He also required a well-rounded team with special talents. Wiretappers for spying, drivers for tailing shipments, and marksmen for, well, shooting. He also demanded they be young, single, and capable of enduring long, hard hours of work, as he mentions in the movie. And while the film portrays the Untouchables as a tenacious quartet, they were actually about ten of them, with a few others dropping in and out for various reasons. With his small team assembled, Ness raids the nearby post office, which doubles as a booze storage facility. The goon running the place argues, but Malone shuts him up. They impound the booze and inform the workers they're all under arrest. It's a much-needed victory for the men. It also never happened. There are no reports that Capone ever stored booze in United States postal offices. While some officials looked the other way in certain situations, Capone never utilized federal buildings to hide his hooch. The Chicago government wasn't that corrupt, and the film overemphasizes the power Capone had over the city. This massive bust, unsurprisingly, doesn't sit well with Capone. In one of the movie's most memorable scenes, the crime boss invites all his high-ranking men, including the one who was in charge of the raided post office, to a fancy banquet. Enthusiasms. Enthusiasms. After a riveting speech about baseball and teamwork, he takes out his frustration on the skull of the sorry goon that failed him. While this scene may seem overdramatic, it's actually based in truth. It didn't happen at a dinner, as shown in the movie, but Capone did actually beat three men to death with a baseball bat. These were high-ranking officials in his organization, but they weren't killed because they lost a lot of booze and money, but because they were conspiring to kill Capone and take over. The next day, the men meet another Capone crony who offers Ness a bribe. Despite the substantial amount of money, more than Ness was making in a year, he rejects the henchman's offer. The goon threatens all of them, asking, You fellows are untouchable, is that the thing? No one can get to you? It is true that Ness was known for rejecting bribes on numerous occasions. The only factual misstep here is that the men got their name, Untouchables, from reporters, not a Capone accomplice. That night, Ness is confronted by Capone's enforcer, Frank Nitty, outside his home. After Nitty makes veiled threats, Ness rushes inside, but finds his wife and daughter safe, and immediately has them escorted out of town. But as mentioned before, Ness didn't have a daughter to threaten, though it is possible, and probably likely, that his wife received a few threats. Not long after, Malone and Stone arrive with a tip on a huge alcohol shipment coming in from Canada. If they intercepted, they could gain information that could help finally put Capone away. The men immediately fly to the Canadian border, teaming with Mounties to await the shipment. After a few anxious hours, the booze trucks roll in, but the Canadian troopers jump the gun and instigate a bloody battle on the border bridge. When the smoke clears, the men are able to stop the shipment and capture a low-level bookkeeper in possession of a ledger that might include incriminating evidence on Capone. When the bookkeeper won't decode the information, Malone pretends to execute another goon to get the bookkeeper to comply. The untouchables finally have what they need, even if it wasn't obtained in a legal sense of the word. Yeah? Well, you're not from Chicago. While this whole sequence is certainly thrilling, it's also total fiction. Ness and his crew of men never carried out missions that far from Chicago, nor joined Mounties to take down bootlegger caravans. For the most part, Capone's supply of booze, when he wasn't making it in the Chicago area, came over the Canadian border through New York, and was then driven to the Windy City. As for Malone's ruthless intimidation tactics, based on Ness's Boy Scout reputation, it's unlikely he would ever allow anything so brutal. This scene is also critical as the men receive a key piece of evidence that will eventually lead to Capone's end, his money ledger. This is all false. The truth is that Frank Wilson and Elmer Irie meticulously combed through every document even remotely related to the mob boss until they came across receipts from a Greyhound racetrack in Florida that Capone had a large interest in. They eventually got hold of the track's ledgers, which noted multiple large payouts to someone known only as Al. Wilson spent weeks looking through documents to find a handwriting sample that matched those in the ledger. Miraculously, he did, which led them to a bookie named Leslie Shumway, who agreed to testify against Capone. 
Further investigation led Wilson to a man named Fred Reese, who frequently made large cash deposits at a bank in a Chicago suburb. Reese then converted the money into cashier's checks and funneled it back to Capone. When captured, Reese also agreed to testify, though it took some convincing. Now that Ness and his crew have enough evidence to bring Capone to trial, a subpoena is issued against the crime boss. What? With the bookie's life in danger, Wallace takes him into protective custody, unaware the escorting officer is Frank Nitty in disguise. Ness finds the two men in the precinct elevator, murdered by Nitty. While this scene is powerful, it's another Hollywood creation. Capone never ordered hits against police officers, let alone federal agents. It would attract too much heat on his operation. Besides, bribes were usually much more effective. Money talks. However, it is reported that Capone ordered a hit on Frank Wilson, who the Wallace character is based on, but called it off when realizing that if his hitmen were captured, they could potentially rat him out and damn him to a life in prison. In a fit of rage, Ness hurries over to Capone's hotel and confronts him, attempting to draw his gun before being restrained by Malone and escorted out of the hotel. In reality, the first time Capone and Ness met was at his trial. With their star witness dead, the district attorney announces he's going to drop the case unless they can find and capture Capone's head bookkeeper, a man by the name of Walter Payne. Malone bloodies his knuckles getting information from the police chief, while Ness tries to stall the DA, who doesn't want to risk his reputation. There's a lot of fabrication here. Neither Shumway nor Reese were killed, so the trial proceeded as planned with those witnesses. The actual DA wasn't worried about his reputation, and in fact did everything to ensure that Capone received the maximum prison sentence, and real police chief Mike Hughes never acted as an informant for the untouchables. Everything from Wallace's assassination to the geriatric back alley brawl was false. That night, Malone is visited by an incompetent killer, only to find Frank Nitty waiting outside with a Tommy gun. Somehow, Malone survives the hail of bullets, just long enough to give crucial information to Ness. It's a powerful scene, and Sir Sean truly sells it. But you guessed it, it's a work of fiction. The real-life Malone, Marty Lahart, survived his time as an untouchable, and actually outlived Ness. And again, Capone never ordered hits on officers or feds, and was the surest way to bring his own operation down. Ness and Stone rush to the train station to intercept the bookkeeper, Payne, before he gets out of town. But things go sideways, and in one of the movie's most famous scenes, a massive bloody gunfight erupts while a baby carriage bounces down the marble staircase. The untouchables are able to safely secure the baby and pain, who is forced into testifying. It's a glorious scene, based on exactly zero facts. Director Brian De Palma had actually envisioned the climactic shootout on a moving train, but by then the production's schedule and budget had been nearly exhausted, and the iconic replacement sequence was improvised in a few days. The baby carriage rolling down the staircase paid homage to the 1925 film Battleship Potemkin. With pain secured, the evidence against Capone seems to spell his doom, but the gangster clearly has an ace up his sleeve. Ness notices that Frank Nitty is packing heat in the courtroom, and asks a nearby officer to escort Nitty out of the room, only to learn he has a permit to carry. Disappointed, Ness returns the gun, but pieces together that Nitty was Malone's assassin. Nitty flees, exchanging fire with Ness and rushing to the courthouse roof, until the enforcer is captured. Ness tries to do the right thing, but Nitty provokes the federal agent, and he winds up taking the express elevator to the street. None of this actually happened. The only truthful moment in the scene is Nitty's gun. He was escorted out and searched, and he did have a signed note from the mayor, but the ensuing gunfight and his death were all made up. As a matter of fact, when the real Capone went to prison, Frank Nitty succeeded him and took over his entire operation. Back in the courtroom lobby, Stone hands new evidence to Ness, 
The jurors in the case have been bribed. Ness approaches the judge and convinces him to switch the juries. Bewildered and furious, Capone lashes out at his attorney, who promptly pleads guilty on the crime lord's behalf. The courtroom erupts, and Ness confidently exits, knowing his job is done and Capone is finished. While most of this scene is fictionalized, there is some truth buried in it. For starters, it was discovered that jurors were bribed, but it was Frank Wilson who brought it to the attention of the judge, who immediately switched the juries. And since it was the IRS that brought the case to court, Ness was not involved with the trial in any capacity, except maybe as a spectator. The real Al Capone was eventually sentenced to 11 years in federal prison on three counts of felony tax evasion and two misdemeanor counts of failing to file a tax return. Welcome to the Rock. Big Al behind bars, the Untouchables went their separate ways, the way Ness and Stone do at the end of the movie. But fortunately, all of the real Untouchables survived through the end of the trial. So there's the truth behind the Untouchables. While it is a wonderful and thrilling Hollywood movie, it practically rewrites every aspect of the actual story. It glorifies and greatly exaggerates Ness's role in taking down Al Capone, and severely overshadows the hard work carried out by Frank Wilson, who was more instrumental in Capone's downfall than Ness ever was. David Mamet and Brian De Palma took major liberties when crafting this film, and despite how exciting it is, The Untouchables is more fiction than fact. Thank you for watching. If you like what you see, please subscribe to our Joe Blow Videos channel. Tell your friends who like this sort of content and turn on the bell to receive notifications for all our latest videos. We are an independent company and we appreciate your support.